Hello and welcome to the Generation Gap podcast here with me, Clive Glover, and with my uh, Generation Z um, colleague, Anna. Hello, Anna. Hi, Clive. Now, we're going to talk about something very Generation Z today. I always want to say Generation Z because of this American sort of phrase, but I I think we'll keep it said. So very much the case is the... uh, issue of climate change which obviously is the big one I suppose for everybody and particularly your generation um, you seem to be very concerned about it because obviously you're the ones who are going to be living for the next uh, few decades when all these um, things are probably going to be happening. Um, So now we've both had a look at this article about the intergovernmental panel on climate change and they've published a report in the last couple of weeks which is basically a bit scary I would say but Mm. how did you react to it? Well, yeah, I thing is, I knew that because in the news there was recently um, like a new bit of information about how like temperatures had warmed to the to I can't remember the certain degrees, but they'd warm to a certain degrees or they will warm to certain degrees in a certain amount of time. I was I'm I feel like I know deep down that climate change is so real and it's very scary how temperatures are warming so quickly. When I read the article, I was like hit, hit with all this information. I was like, oh my god, it is quite scary how. Like flash floods are going to come more frequent, um, droughts, uh, hotter weather, like even in inner cities rather than in places which usually have a hotter climate. So I found it quite scary, really, and quite actually depressing because it feels like whatever you try and do, you can't, it feels like you're powerless to change anything. When I know if everyone did something, then it would create a change. But I think it's about, I think we mentioned earlier that um, when we were just talking before this, that... Um, it is about what companies do and the systemic changes that they can put in place because it is good to recycle or to go vegetarian, but um, a lot that's not where the majority of greenhouse emissions really come from. It's more from like the production of fossil fuels and other things like that. So yeah, that's kind of a different territory we can get into though. Right. I think the thing for me is that um, obviously all of these things are predictions, which is is fair enough, and they're logical predictions. And obviously, yeah. we've we've seen already things. I mean, in the last year, we've obviously seen lots of um, forest fires in places like Greece, particularly in uh, Turkey, and I think in California again, yeah. um, where they've had you know just huge fires, much bigger than they've had in the past, and they have to every fire truck within sort of dozens of miles have to come and try and be there for days on end, and they have to get helicopters dropping water all this kind of stuff which is a really serious fire they have to put huge amount of resource in to deal with yeah you think well that that's bad enough but if you suddenly had 20 of those all at the same time you know what how do you deal with it Mm -hmm. um and the flooding we've had flooding and particularly those parts of germany where they didn't really have a a tradition of that sort of flood suddenly we found themselves with several meters of water well that's the thing flooding and these extreme weather patterns are occurring in areas that are not really resilient to those um like weather weather changes so that's when it becomes a problem because if a place is not prepared to deal with that then it's going to because cause more damage in an area where they are more prepared for it well i think that's right and the there's there's two things well there's three things i'd like to say the first thing is that the predictions are of course all 
if you if you read these things carefully, the predictions suddenly say things like, or oh, in the next decade this will happen, or in the next few decades this might happen, yeah. or by the end of this century, or even by the end of the next century, they're making predictions. So you have to be a bit careful because obviously if you take a sort of very parochial personal view, you can obviously expect to see years like 2050, 2060 uh, in your lifetime, I'm sure. I hope so anyway. Yeah, um, and, and so obviously you'll be thinking, oh my goodness, this could really happen when I'm 50, you know, that's what they're talking about. Um, and um, so I think that you need to look at that sort of stuff. And, and there is a bit of a, it's a bit mis misleading because they sort of sometimes throw these things in saying you know if if this continues like it is then in 100 years time london will be under 10 foot of water or whatever mm. um and they're, they're actually saying that's like 200 years ahead now obviously um i could be very cynical and say well you know the weather forecasters can't tell me what the weather's going to be like at two o'clock tomorrow afternoon let alone in 200 years time but yeah. <laughs> but i mean that's being a bit rude because obviously it is a different thing um yeah. So, I mean, the the thing I think is reasonable for you and your generation to say, oh, my goodness, we're in a terrible situation. We've got to do something about it because it's going to affect us and our children, and our grandchildren, clearly. Um, mm -hmm. And it's all people like me or old people. Have, we've caused it. But the reality is it's really been started from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, which I guess is probably 250 years ago now. Yeah, that's the thing. I feel like the industrialization of society has really been occurring like little by little over time. And I feel like we've got ourselves in a position now where we're so reliant on fossil fuels, reliant, reliant on the meat industry. We're reliant on so many different things that it's so hard to reverse those changes because we've already gone so far. And like they've built into the infrastructure of the way that the country runs or the world really runs. But um, yeah, as you say, it does go back to the un industrial revolution. But people don't really think about that. Well, no, and of course, that's our fault as well, because the Industrial Revolution started in northern England. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, they are. God, yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, OK, so so basically what we know, and I think now, although there are still people who, of course, would go on Facebook and say it's all a load of rubbish and it's all a con and all the rest mm. of it. But basically, I think most people will accept that what's happening is that we are doing things. Um, and those things we do are causing this by emitting um, greenhouse gases, which is carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide and things like methane. And those gases go up into the atmosphere. And as far as you know, it's like seeing a chimney with smoke coming out of it. As far as you can see, it just comes out of the chimney and goes up into the air and disappears. But of course, the particles of that don't disappear completely. And some of these greenhouse gases, basically, they, they stay in the upper atmosphere. And um, I, I, I think I've heard it termed as a blanket over there to keep it warm. I'd like to call it a duvet because it's bigger than that, really. Yeah. And so basically, you know, we're, we're keeping the heat in. It's being reflected mm. again. And that's what's making everything warm up. If you, yeah. put a, if you put a big blanket over your house, you know, the house gets hotter and hotter. Um, and that's the same sort of thing. So that's what we're trying to stop. And clearly, you can take a very simplistic view and say, well, OK, it's these emissions that are causing that. Let's stop those emissions. And obviously, that's what we want to do, not stop them completely, but we have to basically slow them down or, or st stop them over a period of time. And because it really is quite an emergency, we need to have a very short period of time, uh, which is not like tomorrow afternoon, but obviously it's a few years or a few decades at most to try and um, get back to some sort of balance. So the, the Earth doesn't get um, well beyond this. I think three degrees is where it, it's really sort of um, a hellish possibility.
I think because there are, I was doing some research and there are solutions that are being put in place, but they're not really on a wild, a wide, sorry, or a like systemic scale, if that makes sense. So I think as well, um, it's like the solutions, it's all about compliance. So like if the public are compliant with recycling, compliant with um, reducing their carbon footprint by maybe not driving as much, um, that works, but it's all about in basically empowering and encouraging people to do those things but I've um did some research into some solutions and I thought these were quite interesting so I thought I'd maybe share them um there are these things called passive houses which are being built in certain areas of the world but I can't I think it was in um the Scandinavian countries and basically these passive houses have wooden frames and very thick walls so they keep the cold um air out and they keep any um human generated heat in so through cooking through using your apply um telephone sorry using your appliances um using your mobile phone showering um also there are these um uh, concepts called 15 minute cities which um was proposed for paris so they the people who have thought about this idea have proposed that every all services that anyone needs for their day-to-day life um would all be in a 15 minute radius of where they live so including their workplaces um their supermarket their gym maybe uh their coffee shops all of these things would be in such a small radius just so it would reduce how far they'd have to travel which would then reduce their footprint as well so I thought that was quite interesting but they're all it's all like these ideas are ticking away ticking away but they're all quite small at the moment there's not really they're not really being adopted on a wide scale so I think that's probably part of the problem that it's so hard to change. Like I was reading some articles and um, they were saying how these change, changes can occur like, in the aviation industry. They can start replacing kerosene with um, alternative fuels, but that, that will take years to come. So it's like they have to, int- they can't just go from zero to a hundred. They have to slowly integrate these changes, but that obviously takes time. And I think the problem is we're running out of time. So you have that contrast between change can happen, but it's not happening fast enough. Well, I think that's right. And the passive house thing is something I've been very interested in. It's um, It started in Germany. And I've that actually, was it, yeah. I have been in those houses. And in fact, a friend of mine in Germany has been building his own house. It's, it's pretty much a passive house. Um, and I, I sat there once in their conservatory in the winter. And um, basically, they had one tiny wood stove, which was actually in the house somewhere. And it heated the whole house, which has got like four bedrooms and so on. It's quite a big oh, house. Wow. Um, because it's just so well insulated. You know, you, you're yeah, sitting yeah. in this, a conservatory, obviously glass all around, looking outside, there's snow on the ground. <laughs> but basically, yeah. you're warm and toasty with no obvious heater because mm, it keeps all mm. the heat in. Um, yeah. And that's really good. But obviously, um, in Germany, they do build these uh, quite a few buildings, houses and other buildings. There's a new hospital I've seen details of recently um, where the whole thing is a passive house um, and it doesn't really need any heating at all because people just wandering around and breathing there and so on creates enough heat to heat the whole building up. Yeah, and obviously then you're saving electricity because you're not using the heating. It's a lot more of like it's utilising the heat that we're already producing to benefit us rather than adding in more heat when we've already got it there we just need to insulate it well that's it but the trouble is it's it's very very much more insulation than we do um our houses in this country are generally rubbish in terms of that they're they're quite poorly built using fairly poor, poor, poor materials and i mean basically if you go to any sort of 
building site of which there's plenty around here at the moment um, and see that they just have sort of breeze blocks and then they put bricks on the outside with a little air gap between them um, although most people have double glazing these days it's not like um, the quality of triple glazing which I've seen in Sweden and in Germany which basically is sort of bulletproof in terms that you know you it's soundproofing and it's obviously heat proofing and also the the connection between again technically here in building terms but the window mm. frames against the wall you know um they in germany they do it to a sort of really minute tolerance there's basically no gaps at all in yeah. this country i've seen it done including in my own house where they basically sort of bang a little sort of roughly shaped hole stick the windows in and then just fill up this sort of putty around the edge until it sort of just yeah, fills the gaps yeah. and that sort of thing and I, I was horrified when i saw that and said oh, this is this isn't any good said, oh well this is why we do it well you know mind your own business and that was no, on my own house that, <laughs> that's the thing though because building houses in a more like climate friendly way is it's probably just more expensive and also houses are, um, need to be built quickly and usually that means they're built cheaply and that, just because of po- i suppose because of population growth more and more houses like I've, i feel like i everywhere that i've been especially in southampton where my grandma lives so there's so many new developments of houses that have just popped up but you can tell like then they're quite cheaply built they all look exactly the same probably not very climate friendly like it's it's difficult because they become more yeah it just becomes more expensive and people can't always afford for that right but we've got about 30 million uh, homes you know houses and flats in this country yeah and pretty much all of them are not adequate for um sort of dealing with climate change so in principle we've got to retrofit in some way 30 million homes and probably many of them you can't actually do it properly at all for various reasons um, particularly the more modern ones which are just not built very well but even older victorian buildings which were built much better in terms of solidity as it were and, and thicker walls <clears throat> it's more difficult to build things in those and um, that's a huge job which is actually unimaginable to complete because obviously they also at the same time we want to strip out all the gas boilers which is 85 percent of homes have gas boilers and we want to replace them with heat pumps which are are completely different kind of um, systems which are external you have to have a big sort of thing like an air conditioner outside which um, pumps heat in and compresses it or pumps air in and compresses it to make heat and they do work and you can buy them but they cost um, probably about five or six times the cost of a gas boiler for instance yeah that's the thing yeah Um, and so for doing that I I did a quick estimate on my house which is a fairly ordinary sort of house it's a semi-detached house uh, built in the 1970s and uh, I estimated it would cost £45,000 to install these sort of systems in and wow god that obviously is so that was no problem at all i just write a check no i mean it's basically yeah. um, and so the level of what's needed and obviously people in terraced houses people in flats and of course we've also had these problems with people um after the grenville fire um checking out the fire safety of uh, many flats there's now nearly a million people living in flats who can't sell them or move because the insurance companies and so on won't cover them at all because they don't think they're necessarily safe it doesn't mean they are unsafe, but they just don't know. That's exactly what I was going to mention about um, state. So that I read about how there's this word called C- CLT. I can't exactly remember what it stands for, but it's made from trees that gr- have been growing for around 40 years. But these trees like, absorb and sequester carbon as they grow. But then that comes with safety concerns because timber 
um, buildings are obviously less fireproof. And with the new legislation following the Grenfell incident, um, timber buildings haven't been able to be built, I think, as often, or high-rise buildings made of timber aren't allowed. So uh, there's kind of the balance there between safety and making something a bit more climate-friendly. And that's, yeah. And that's the thing as well, like, legislation can really affect so many things. Like, when I was researching, I was thinking... Uh, not we won't get into individual politicians or politics but just generally how politicians have a lot of influence and how systemic change can come from actually legislation um and politics and laws that are passed um that can have quite a big impact on how things change yeah i mean but there's plenty of places around the world where um timber houses are the norm um, North America, generally Canada and states, um, a lot of places, actually because yeah. they have violent storms and so on. If you live in a wooden house, and the wind is such that it's going to sort of blow your house down, as it were, it's actually safer to have a wooden house because you're less likely to be injured than if it was a great big concrete monstrosity falling on. Top yeah, of you. my um, family in Canada, she, my um, great aunt, she has a wooden house, and everyone on her street has a wooden house. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely, definitely true. Well, I always remember staying with some people in Canada once and um, we they were taking a little drive around the, the town to sort of show me what it was like. And they turned a corner and he said suddenly, oh, those houses weren't there last week. And I thought, huh? <laughs> and literally, they had these houses which come, they're built in a factory, sort of each wall, and they take mm. them to the site and put them together and they can build a house in like two or three days because they just connect together the walls and each wall's got the pipes and the wires and so on on it and oh they just plug God, it all together that's amazing. <clears throat> and it literally these sort of i don't know six or eight houses it all been built in the week and he, he hadn't even noticed <laughs> yeah um i think oh, wow on the sort of legislation thing that is an important area because obviously it's about building regulations and mm. our building regulations obviously are um you know very specific and and quite strict in many ways but they're strict against different criteria which doesn't include the climate change issues and i i do feel as you've sort of hinted that if we change those building regulations i mean you know like now all houses built say from you know next year should be to a much higher standard ideally something like the passive house standard then at least we would be going forward in that way because we've still got to go retro for the other houses to sort of do things with them but if we have at least started now because otherwise if we build two hundred thousand houses a year something like that then if we leave it for two or three years there'll be 400 or six hundred thousand houses to retrofit as well it seems bar- balmy to do that yeah i um i was reading about how with adapting buildings and making them more climate friendly and as you say like introducing a heat pump over a gas heater um it's it's better to take a house and adapt it rather than build a completely new one like it's a lot more um money effect um yeah a lot more um cost effective that's the word and just a lot more sensible to do that but yeah like you can have things like vegetable gardens even on your roof and things like that like you can do have lots of quite quirky things if you want to with heat pumps the best um, way of doing it is to actually have underfloor heating. Yeah. Now, obviously, if you have an, a typical house in this country, I mean, the majority of houses have been built in the last 30 years, say, perhaps 40 years. Um, adding adding underfloor heating means sort of pulling out the floor and putting uh, two layers in 
and it's obviously going to be an incredibly expensive thing to do and not really practical in most most senses so if we started building all new houses with underfloor heating systems you know again from next year say um, mm. that, that would be a, a very much effective thing to do and it's funny I, I was talking to someone about this the other day and said them well Things like, you know, underfloor heating, it's not exactly a new idea. If you go along to the uh, Roman ruins by the um, auditorium uh, in St. Albans, there's there's the ground floors of several of the big sort of villas that were there, and they have exactly that. They've got underfloor heating. Now, okay, they were burning coal or something to um, heat them. But it's still the same concept, isn't it? Same principle, yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's 2,000 years ago, so it's hardly sort of modern technology. (laughs) Yeah, and it's just it's quite frustrating because you think why can houses have just been built with that straight away? But I think underfloor heating is seen in my eyes as a luxury. I wouldn't say it's something that every house would have or should have. But I, I like in my eyes, it's seen as a luxury. But maybe it's actually not. Maybe it's actually better. It's just more effect, efficient than other heating methods. Well, the thing is that the you know when you've got gas central heating, what you do is when it's on, you get the radiators and you probably snuggle up to the radiator and say, "Oh, this is nice and nice and warm." Mm. And radiators typically are something like seventy degrees, I think it is, um, the, the, the water you're putting into them. Now that's because we've got a gas boiler which puts out quite a high temperature water. Um, the heat pump systems do not do that they, they, they produce heat but it's at a lower level so what you do need to do is have it really switched on all day and all right, night okay. yeah. um, and it's a lower temperature so you you'd need to replace your radiators with bigger radiators to deal with that but if you had underfloor heating then basically that heat that heat is going under the floor all the time so your house is just warm Constantly warm, yeah. It's not necessarily hot. And I think some people, uh, I did read about an experiment they did in some flats in London uh, with various families living in, in them and they, they amended them so they had these air, air conditioning, oh, sorry, air heating system. And they did complain it wasn't hot enough because they were obviously used to having quite a high temperature. Mm. So there's a bit of an issue with that. You know, what is a comfortable temperature? I mean, the legal temperature, for example, in offices that you, you need to keep an office at least 16 degrees. Oh, wow. Now, I didn't even realise there was a legal temperature. Well, there is, and, but that's for offices, not homes. Mm. But if you had your house, and try, you can try it, set it for 16 degrees. You'll probably think that's pretty cold. Mm, yeah. Um, my mum always says, just get more blankets, put on more layers. And I think people just turn the heating on because it's easy, but you could, you can actually layer up before doing that. Well, you know, <laughs> we, we're not all entitled to spend the entire year walking around in shorts and T-shirts in our houses. No, exactly. <laughs> no. Well, okay. Now, that's actually come on to an in, in, a point here. One of the things is that, uh, as you said, I mean, obviously, the, the big things are like transport, and we're talking about having electric vehicles in future. Yeah. That's something yeah. many people, I think, will say, okay, that's fair enough. And obviously, when I change my car next, I'll seriously look at an electric car, and probably it's quite likely you, you say, okay, I'll get one. And the prices mm. are coming down for electric cars and so on. Um, and we're, <clears throat> obviously, by 2030, we're, we're not going to be able to buy a new petrol or diesel car anyway. Um, but that won't mean they've all gone. I think um, I, I did work it out. But I think by the time um, we get to 2030, which is only not nine and a bit years away, um, the number of cars which are electric will be reckoned to be maybe 10 million by then. But there's wow. 30 there's 30 million cars. So there'll still be 20 million um, petrol or diesel ones around for more, many more years. And That's also, still quite promising, though. 
Well, yeah, it's, it's good, and but it's obviously a big change as well, and it needs all this infrastructure built. You know, you, your petrol stations don't need to be there, but you need your electric power stations. You need to be able to drive up, plug in, and and charge up the battery. Yeah, because I did see um actually I think Tesco's are starting an initiative where they're introducing um electric car charger points into their car parks. And I think if people know that they can easily charge their car, then they're gonna be more likely to go for that electric option because it's just easier. It's people don't wanna think I think people are put off if they think, Oh, they're not very much in use, there's not very many charging points, that's gonna be a big faff for me. But if um they're just integrated into infrastructure as you said then I think they're much more appealing to people. Well, that's right. I mean, there are a few in, in St Albans. And in fact, I, I remember there's uh, actually one of the early ones was actually by the council's car park uh, behind the council building, oh, the, the right. old marina. And it's by, um, there's a sort of seat by it, which is not, <laughs> I don't think that's deliberate. But I always remember going there one Sunday and parking uh, nearby. And there was this guy there sitting reading his newspaper um, on the bench while his car was charging up there. And I asked him, you know, about the car and he said it took you know an hour to charge oh wow so he would just went there and sat down read his paper you know waiting for the hour for it to charge now obviously mm. that's not really something you can do if you drive into a petrol station to fill your car up it takes what 10 minutes yeah you, less than that probably well, probably but you want that sort of equivalent you don't want to be sitting mm. around a petrol station for an hour waiting for your car to be charged up anyway i mean that, those things are all happening and the other things are the big companies obviously are um changing the way they do many things transport is one of the big producers of um greenhouse yes, gases yeah. what i want to say so um transport's one of the greenhouse gas emitters another one is agriculture although it's not so much the farmers as such it's things like making the fertilizer which is using um, oil and gas to, uh, to make fertilizer and also obviously there's lots of machinery these days we have much bigger farms than we used to so everything's yeah. got tractors and bigger tractors and um, obviously harvesters all those sort of things are all basically um, petrol driven or diesel as, as such red yeah, diesel yeah. they use um and of course you have to think about the methane that um animals are producing yeah the famous cow's burps yeah, exactly, yes. And it is burps. Some people think it comes from the other end. That's not actually true. <laughs> oh, really? That's interesting. I thought it was the other end. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, that's the sort of standard image. Um, but, of course, that's also um, something where we could make changes, but it would be sort of, I suppose, a bit retrospective. Going back to smaller farms um, would be perhaps where, you know, it's not cows out on the fields eating grass that's the problem. It's cows in great big sheds eating prepared um, food, which is basically, again, involving um, oil and gas type um, things to, to produce the feed for them. Mm, um, yeah. and, and obviously it's the, the big things like clearing rainforests to grow soya beans for all those people who want to drink soya milk, for example, thinking it's a good healthy option, which I suppose it is, but not, not healthy if it's destroying big chunks of rainforests. That's the thing. I think there needs to be industrial changes rather than um i think that that's more effective than local smaller scale change but that's really difficult because the whole industry has been working in that way for years and years and years and to go in and change something it, it's going to take time it's going to cost money um and it's going to take compliance from the people who are already working in that industry 
Exactly. So there's these big things which obviously um, need to be done and, and they're all been identified. And so people are doing these things. And there's this whole business about mitigation is the word you'll hear a lot, which is basically doing things to try and cut back on the emissions. Yeah, and yeah. So therefore do it. But there's also the other thing which we're not talking about very much is actually changing the things which we can do to adapt for the future accepting that some of these things are going to happen so you know we need to not build houses where it's going to flood for example which of course is yeah, something that yeah. happens all the time but equally like in scotland the rules for building the roofs of houses is much different and they basically have to build them much stronger and they don't do tiles so much they use slate more often uh, because it's less likely to blow off in a high wind so yeah. perhaps we should be adapting our houses in england and wales um, to something similar because we're going to get the higher winds here that that's the sort of thing that could be done relatively easily and over over a period of time and again with new houses they should have stronger roofs that's the thing it's kind of you have to say we can't change what exactly has gone on but we can change everything from this point on now and i think if there's a climate focus from now then think that definitely changes can be made but it just has to be kept up and actually every company needs to like try their best to be more carbon more climate friendly sorry i think one of the other things i just wanted to say to you and i think this is um quite important is that there is a tendency and particularly with the big companies who are very vulnerable to um complaints that they are responsible for much of the emissions uh people like you know airlines where they can't really not fly airplanes otherwise that's quite a tricky business to keep going yeah um, um that they tend to try and personalise it. So it's not about, you know, us people in this country or our governments or whatever making changes. It's about you, Anna. What are you going to do to mm. stop climate change? And I think this can get really rather silly because it's, it's a bit of a distraction thing. So obviously I can tell you that obviously the thing you should do is make sure that you recycle properly, that you walk to school rather than, you know, get driven there that you always um when you go on holiday you don't fly abroad you perhaps go to a nice seaside in in this country because it's um you know it saves on all the energy consumption you're, you're doing and obviously you should go vegetarian immediately and stop eating meat because that's causing all these things as well and there's a whole list of these kind of things and if you got really into it you can obviously pick up all these things and say oh in future i will only use this and i won't use that plastic and i'll do everything with cardboard instead and i'll recycle all that and it takes your mind away from perhaps the big things where you perhaps would otherwise be sort of knocking on the door of some big company saying, hey, why don't you do this or why don't you stop doing that? I think that's very true. And I also think people can feel really guilty and think, oh, my God, I'm not doing enough. Like, what can I do to um, help climate change? And I think it definitely is a distraction tool. And it's, it's definitely a way to of companies saying, well, actually, we're we are a company but you're also an individual and you have as much responsibility as we do and it's not really the case but um i think companies definitely do go th like there's a lot of advertising where it's like you can be the change of the future do this do that blah 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 but it's yeah i know everyone can make a difference and people should feel empowered to do that but every company also can it's it's both it's on both scales well, I think the, the soy milk is a good example because obviously that's been promoted very much as being good for you. It's not dairy and therefore, you know, you should drink soy milk instead. Um, but then you find out that um, to satisfy the demand for soy milk, 
Um, there's huge things going on. And again, I did mention it's the Amazon, particularly where they're basically cutting down the trees in the Amazon forest, which clearly is important to the world to um, grow more soybeans. And then, of course, those beans are sent from, well, uh, Brazil or whatever. So they're transported across to Europe or the US or whatever to turn oh. into soy milk. That's another thing. What's really interesting, and that's what you said, just just reminded me that so much of our food has so many air miles that that is what is really bad for the planet. But my brother actually, he's work. He's on his um. He's in his third year of uni, and he's doing an internship um at this company called Let Us Grow, and it's a company where they specialize in vertical um aeroponic and hydroponic vertical farming so essentially they they have these big shipping containers that they can plant and they can put into cities people can actually have them privately and they grow plants in an aeroponic way so the roots are out of um out into the air and they use a mist so they lose they use less water they don't have to be grown the climate is controlled they don't have to be grown in a certain country they can be grown anywhere um people can have them privately or they can be used on more of an industrial scale and it's much more climate effective. And I think little cup, like it's only a startup company from Bristol was actually set up by Bristol uni students after they graduated, I think. Um, and like there's climates, there's companies like this that are great, but I suppose they need investment to be um, able to produce more stock and sorry, not more stock, but more containers in this case, but there are alternative ways to growing food that are being tested out so I th- i'm not sure if you know about that but well i didn't know about that one particular i mean i know it's, it's something that has been pioneered in israel particularly because israel is a relatively small country and um obviously they have uh, problems with their neighbors shall we say and so um yes, they can't necessarily import food so they grow everything there and they do hy- the hydroponic thing as well and yes it's, it's an excellent way of doing things um i mean you know in this country we actually import most I think it's about 53% of our food. Um, And so I do actually, when I pick up a packet of something like, you know, particularly something like green beans, Mm. and I see they come from Egypt or Peru or something, I think, well, goodness, what the hell is that doing? You know, I I actually don't buy such things now because apart from anything else, they generally don't taste very nice because they've been obviously travelled for a long way before they they get to the shop. Um, But I mean, there is an argument, you know, by buying something like that, I'm helping those poor uh, farmers in these sort of developed underdeveloped countries and, and also you uh, also think they've been produced those beans are there if i buy them if i don't buy them someone else might not buy them then they might go to waste or some so but then you think but then i also think well demand fuels supply so should i be not buying them and hopefully less will be produced it's just it's quite a dilemma when you're in the supermarket it's quite hard well the supermarkets basically you know they, they have customers who expect to be able to go and buy fresh strawberries 12 months a year mm-hmm. and obviously in the past we just said well strawberries come in june for two or three weeks around wimbledon of course and uh, of that's course, when you get yeah. the delicious strawberries so you have to sort of think seasonal uh, and we don't do that because we've got out of it because the supermarkets can source stuff from all around the world and of course flight in from all over the world and that is i think a big issue which we really should be able to deal with we, we need to grow more stuff locally um, definitely and there are sacrifices that people need to make like you can't have your strawberries all year round if you want to be climate friend if you want to help the climate like you've got to make some sacrifices well it's something to look forward to oh yes and maybe June. yeah exactly and also it's like pay i remember we've spoken about this before but 
it's about paying more money for locally sourced produce that's higher quality. You pay more, but you get be- you get more value for money. Well, indeed, and I think that's something that um, again, we, we it's a sort of change that can be made locally. And I think it probably is a good idea. I mean, um, obviously, uh, the idea of people having um, bigger gardens so they can grow some food themselves, um, more allotments when they build new houses, there should be allotments for everybody, for example, available. And that kind of stuff can be built into the rules and it just isn't yeah, at the moment. Definitely. Right, well, we've solved all the world's problems, I think, in the last half yeah, hour. Yeah, we've so. put the world to rights in yeah. our podcast. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And I think it is it is a very interesting area, of course. It's one we probably mm. come back to, I think, as well. Definitely. Um, it's such a big topic. Well, it is a very other big topic. And I think it's one of those things that, we, you know, actually we've got to really get something done. And I suppose it's a combination of doing things yourself um but you know doing things by yourself individually isn't going to make the world different possibly combining that with a bit of sort of um lobbying and um you know sort of uh maybe even protesting although I, i'm not entirely sure i agree with some of the protests going on for example like these um extinction rebellion people i think they they're sort of doing it for their own sake rather than really um seriously trying to make the changes that would would actually have the effect um, but... I know I do agree I sometimes think what is the benefit of the protest but um, I know it's to raise awareness but I feel like climate change is very high profile now I think yeah that's right I mean again don't want to get into all the details but it seems to me that um, it is right to do that but I think there's more ways of doing it, particularly in a country like this which is a democratic country despite some of the things people might <laughs> feel occasionally um, and you can make a difference by sort of being sort of um, Writing letters, I'm, I'm sort of being a bit old-fashioned, but basically that's the sort of way, and lobbying your MPs and telling them what you think about this and why aren't they supporting that and all that sort of thing mm-hmm. is probably an effective thing. It just takes time and obviously sort of um, application, but it is a, yeah. a way of doing things. And, you know, we've had a long history of doing things in this country, but we're a bit slow sometimes taking up, taking them up. Like the Germans have been building rather better houses than us for a long time. Yeah, for years. <laughs> Well, a very long time because, of course, Germany had to rebuild from scratch about um, seventy years ago, mm-hmm. um, and they built. Yeah. They, they started that, but if we sort of taken notice uh, fifty years ago and said, "Oh, actually, why aren't we, why aren't we doing it like that?" Um, and uh, but we, we didn't, obviously, because we know best. Know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then that comes down to politics, doesn't it? <laughs> it's all like that. Anyway, Anna, thank you very much for this, and um, lovely no to talk to you again. And um, I think. Uh, we have a few things to think about now on this whole subject. Um, Definitely. Right. So anyway, you've been listening to the Generation Gap um, podcast here from Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. And this is one of many podcasts from the um, Radio Verulam and also from Generation Gap, actually. I think we've hit about 80 or 90 now. Um, oh, wow. And um, there's also loads of other um podcasts including in fact environment matters which is all about environmental things and there's literally hundreds of those on on us uh, our website which is um www.radioverulam.com and on our website you'll find thousands literally of um podcasts so dip in there and uh, see you'll find all sorts of interesting things to talk about so thank you very much for listening and uh, look out for another podcast coming shortly from the generation gap